to, um, to hear you speak through your word. Work, no matter where we're at, we need the same thing. We need you to come in and work and make our hearts receptive. Clear, clear, clear our minds so that we can understand. And Lord, above all things, let Jesus and everything he has done come to the fore. Let the one who speaks all the way so for a couple shows of hands. I didn't do this in youth, but y'all are more interactive, so I feel like I can do that here. Raise your hand if you have ever heard the phrase, the church is full of hypocrites. Okay? Oh, good. Okay, that's almost everybody. Yeah, you're going to be brave. Raise your hand if you've said it. Okay, it's all right. I'm raising it because I've said it. Okay? Right? Okay, good. Good. This is a phrase that is is so common that it's risen to the level of truism, right? And evidences for this can be found everywhere. I'm old enough to remember, some of you are like, yeah, old, but I'm old enough to remember, right, uh, the televangelist Jimmy Swagger, who used to rail on the sexually immoral out there until he's standing on stage with tears in his eyes, saying, forgive me for I've sinned. Like, you remember that? Some of you all do. And that seemed to start this long string of high-profile pastors who had these different falls from grace. And then, of course, we have the, the stories that go out about people who go to churches that um, don't allow you to watch movies or certain kinds of movies, and so the people end up going three towns over to go to movies so they're not recognized, right? Until they're recognized. And in fact, I would say that hypocrisy in the church is such a powerful objection to faith that you have people with no experience of hypocrisy of Christians who simply assume this to be true. It's not their personal experience, it's just what they heard, and therefore it is true, right? But the important part about this objection, if we're going to look at this objection and, and kind of um, examine where it comes from and, and, and the merits of it, the important part about it is the definition, right? Like, what does it mean? What we're going to do over the next 35 minutes or so is we're going to look at hypocrisy. And what we're going to look at it as, and there's an outline in the bulletin that's helpful, we're going to look at it as a human problem and then look at how God solves it. We're going to look at a human problem and a divine solution. So let's first start with the human problem by looking at it in the church's problem. Okay? Let me, let me clearly define for you what hypocrisy is. Because I'm sure some of you grew up in the church or maybe, maybe uh, I don't remember ever saying this, but it, it, I'm sure maybe I have, I forget things. The hypocrisy, it comes from a Greek word that means actor and someone wearing a mask and yada, yada, yada. That's fine. Here's what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is the notion of publicly presenting one face or image of yourself while privately acting in a way that's directly contrary to the public face. Right? So this is, this is uh, the person who rails publicly on the notion that you can't be a Christian and drink alcohol while, um, while enjoying beer on the weekends all the time. Right? Which is really funny because I just think I knew a pastor, one of my pastors, who, who was fine saying from the pulpit that, you know, it, there, it wasn't a sin to, to drink alcohol and yet would always have someone else go buy his beer for him. I'm not really sure why, but he always said, and he was always like a 22 year old college student. I don't, I'm not sure why, but he always said, he always said, 
condemns the, the sexually immoral out there while constantly um, engaging and indulging in his own pornography. And there are two components to this that are important. Two components to hypocrisy. The first is the presentation of the self. Presentation of yourself as beyond sin, or at least certain sins. Right? You are beyond these things. And the second is the actual presence of said sins. Or similar vices. Does that make sense? So it's saying, good Christians like me never do such things, while at the same time, doing such things. Or saying, you need to follow all the words of Jesus while conveniently forgetting about two-thirds of them. Right? Now, we need to understand that because hypocrisy has got to have both of those things to be hypocrisy. Just saying that something is wrong doesn't make one hypocrite. Nor does being broken in need. This makes you broken in need, not hypocrite. But, here's the reality. This is a huge issue in the church. Hypocrisy is a big issue in the church. It'd be foolish for us to say that it's not. There are lots of reasons for this, some of which we're going to deal with here in a minute, but we need to simply acknowledge there are tons of hypocrites in the church. Right now. Probably in this room. We lean there. Anytime Christians declare, whether implicitly or explicitly, that their righteousness, their goodness, is based on their spirituality, their moral effort, their life choices, and that those who don't measure up to them are there because of the same said choices, they're just on the opposite side. They leave themselves open to hypocrisy. What they? Okay. Here's what we need to see. The issue of hypocrisy is not a Christian Yes, it is in the church. It's in the church because there are people in the church, and hypocrisy is a human problem, not a Christian problem. It's a human problem because those outside the church have the same issues. Again, hypocrisy is all about presenting a fake front. It's being inconsistent with our moral outrage, and Christians are not the only people in the universe with moral outrage. There are lots of people with moral outrage, right? We see this when we hear of a person... Uh, proclaiming how understanding and intolerant they are, but refusing to even listen to someone whose beliefs they believe to be intolerant. I can be intolerant of intolerant people and still be tolerant. I'm not sure how that exactly works. It's hypocrisy, but we're okay with it, aren't we? It's uh, it's it's the guy who um, stands up wondering what must be wrong with people that they can't understand the human component to to global climate change while their carbon footprint is the size of Texas because they fly everywhere in a private jet. It's the politician who criticizes those in other parties for lying to the public, but when they're caught in a lie complaint, they will do whatever it takes to win elections. And it's found in people who criticize the greedy but aren't generous because, of course, I mean, I don't make enough money. Right? Hypocrisy isn't a Christian problem. Now, some of you who maybe you're still wrestling the whole Christian thing, you're thinking, yeah, but it's way worse than the church. It's way worse than the church because of how Christians understand their standing with God. I, I actually agree with you, but probably for different reasons. 
So to begin to engage with those businesses, let's gain some clarification. When we deal with hypocrisy, both in the church and in the world, and especially when we are dealing with the criticism of Christian hypocrisy, there is a particular logic at play that we have to engage with. And the logic goes something like this. In its more religious form, the logic goes like this. God's affection for us is determined by our behavior for Him. See how that logic goes? So therefore, if you proclaim, I'm in good with God, the assumption is you think you behave well for Him. And of course, as soon as you don't, and you won't, people are going to say, hey, that's the logic, right? In its, in its less religious form, the same logic is still at play, and it goes like this. I am right because I do right. I am in the right because I do right. Now, some of you are thinking, like, isn't this just kind of self-evident? Like, you're a preacher of Christianity. Isn't this what your position? Well, no. In short, no. Uh, I'll speak more to that in a second. But what I want us to see right now is that the weird thing about our, about hypocrisy and all of our struggles with it, Christian or not, is the assumption that something is wrong with us and we've got to fix it. You see that? It's based on this strange need to be seen as right or even moral. And that's why we get defensive. And listen, I'm about to say this. Don't be defensive. But it's why we get defensive when someone points out our inconsistencies. And you know you do, because I do. Well, Rick, you say this, but you do this. Like, okay, you're right. I don't like that. But you're right. And then once we get defensive, we begin the gymnastics of image control. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I just, my only question to you right now would be, have you ever wondered why that is? Because you know that's true. It's true with me. I'm sure it's true with you. I mean, as a Christian, I, I can tell you why we think it is, but why do you think it is? Why do you think that's true? Why is it that we can declare in our culture that morality and truth are relative, and at the same time be obsessed with maintaining a particular image on our social media feeds of what whether we like certain posts and dislike others based on what we think the standard conventional wisdom will be. Because let's be honest, you don't give two shakes about most of the stuff that comes on your social media feed. But you like stuff and you dislike it because you're afraid of what someone else is going to think you like or dislike. Not because you actually care. You scroll through that sucker so fast you can't even read it. Why? If, if truth and morality are all relative, so hard to maintain this image of keeping our cultural mores? Why do we work so hard at acting one way in public and another in private? It doesn't make sense, does it? Because see, anytime when we believe we have to cover our own failures, we betray something deeper that we actually believe than what we say. When we, when we start to, when we may say, like, look, my truth is this, and your truth is this, and you can't judge me for my truth, yada, yada, yada. But when we act a certain way, we cover over our failures and promote our successes, we actually betray that we believe something different than what we tell people. Now, the Bible teaches that this belief that's at that deep level is that there is something wrong with us, that we are not right with God. Now, some of us don't believe that here, and that's okay, but like I've said throughout this entire series, it's not enough to hear a preacher like me or hear someone say something and just go, no, uh. Right? You 
failures may be different based on culture, but our experience of failure, the need to be viewed in a light, the fear of being exposed as not, you know you feel that. What is it going to mean if I'm exposed, if they finally see me? That presentation of a false front, that is universally commanded. Why? And the Bible will teach us that it's because deep down we know that our relationship with God has been fractured by our betrayal of Him. We've turned away from Him, seeking our autonomy, our independence. And now here's where that logic that I talked about before starts to take over. If you know that you're not right, and the logic is God's affection for me is dependent on my behavior for Him, then we assume that we have to be better. But is that the Christian answer? Well, let's look at this letter to Corinthians to find out. Let's look at the divine solution. Before I get to this text, let me set it up. Uh, if you've been here for a while, you've probably heard the name Paul a bunch, even if you're not familiar with the Bible. Uh, Paul was one of the first uh, Christian leaders in the church. He was what was called an apostle. Uh, he wrote this letter First 1 Corinthians. Paul, before he became a Christian, was this super religious Jewish guy, like super religious. So much so that he said, look, you take all the rules and you line them up and you line up, line up my life and you will not see discrepancy. I was the stuff when it comes to religious rule keeping. But then he also says that after being a Christian, he viewed all of that rule keeping as garbage. He said it strongly enough, but we're going to look at that, okay? Call it garbage. Maybe this passage can help us see why. Look at verses 26 to 29. It says this first. It says, Consider your call. Not many of you were wise born in worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of birth. Now stop there. Here's what Paul's going in Corinth, and Corinth was a city in what is now Greece, uh, the Corinthian church had begun to divide up the church based on how they understood what they were bringing to the table. So if you leaned more intellectual and had a mind for, for theology and Bible, they would go, well, we're the ones that God loves because we're smart, we're better than y'all, and there are other folks who go, no, no, God loves me, obviously, because I'm materially blessed. I reach up and grab my blessing, so obviously God loves me and love you. Or you had other people who were going, no, no, no. God loves us more because we're, we're poor and needy like Jesus was. Right? So they're dividing up the church, and Paul is trying to answer these things. He's trying to speak to this. Because they're trying to, what he wants to do is he wants to point out what it was exactly they brought to the table. And what he tells them is you weren't wise, you weren't powerful, and you weren't noble. Now, those things were culturally powerful for them. Here, here's why. Corinth was a university town. I don't know if y'all have the same experience, but when you go into like a snooty university city, let me, for example, anytime I find myself walking the streets of Charlottesville, I hear Mr. Jefferson's voice in my head going, you're not smart enough to be here, Nick. I'm sorry, you're right, I like, that is just, for me at least, that's kind of normal. Corinth was the center of the age of, of first century learning in the world. And you're like, wait a minute, I thought that was Athens. Well, it was about a century before that, but now Corinth had taken its place. It was the preeminent college town, right? It was where you had Harvard, Yale, and Oxford, like all in the same place. So when he talks about not many of you are wise. He's speaking to that value of learning and education. So it was a 
Scotland sound, but it was also an elderly mobile town, which was unheard of in the ancient world. Because Corinth existed in that crossroads of two trade routes, north, south, east, west, it was the center of Roman trade, which meant that it was the only, one of the only cities in the ancient world where you could have an upwardly mobile middle class. That didn't exist in, in the Greco-Roman world, except in some place like Corinth, where you could go from one year being an indentured servant to buying your freedom, and three or four years later, you're actually a massive landlord because you're able to make money. You're powerful. And so when he says, how many of you are powerful, he's speaking to that. You're not great because you're powerful. It was also politically important for all the reasons I just said. And so talking about nobility is speaking to the value of like, look, I'm, I'm a ruler. And he's saying, you weren't any of these things. But keep reading. It says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low, what is despised in the world. And then he goes into this phrase, it's hard to translate in English, that literally says, he chose the, the despised of the world, the nothings, to bring to nothing the somethings. Which is great. He's just powerfully trying to get it across. You weren't anything. And he's saying, in fact, he's saying, the reason that they are Christians is not in spite of these things, but because of them. Far from being a place where you find the moral exemplars, far from being a place where you find the strong people, the church is a place where you find the folks with jacked up lives who are weak. And then anything else, Paul says, is pretending. And he finishes it up with it so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now that's an interesting statement, so stick with me. Once again, in Corinth, the concept of boasting was more than socially acceptable. It was expected. So if you were to go and look at the ruins of the city of Corinth, you may, on some tour, someone who knows where to, where to point to, would point you to um, the ruins of a statue. And on that statue, there's an inscription, and that statue is up in, that statue is not a Caesar. It's not a Roman general. It's not some wise philosopher. That statue is a Bob. The meatpacker. The butcher. The city road worker. Because in that culture, you would erect your own statues. And you would put on the statue how great you were. I am so awesome because I helped build this road. I packed meat well. There's my statue. And that was normal. It was socially acceptable. In fact, it was socially expected. You must make much of yourself. It was actually seen as a virtue. According to Paul, though, this is the exact wrong posture before God. Remember what we said about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is, in a sense, creating a context for boasting. I hide my failures, I present this face, and I tell you how great I am because of what I have done. God likes me because I'm awesome. And here Paul is saying, God chose those who weren't awesome so that there couldn't be any boasting. Now, if you're paying attention, you're probably thinking, this kind of messes up that whole logic you talked about earlier, Rick, about God's affection being based on our accomplishments. You're totally right. So what do we do with that? Because you're right. 
Well, let's see in, in right and looking. Look down at verses 30 and 31. Paul says this. He says, because of him. If you have your own Bible, would you underline that phrase? Because that's one of the most important three words in this entire thing. Because of him. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. That is righteousness and sanctification and redemption. See, here is why hypocrisy is out of place in Christianity. That sentence tells us why it is out of place. So follow me a second, because there's a lot of tricky words in this. Paul says, it is Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and writes his sanctification and redemption. Here's what he means. Conventional wisdom says, and I don't mean first century conventional wisdom, I mean it's been conventional wisdom throughout the entire history of humans. Conventional wisdom says, God will like you if you do right. It says you will be right if you do right. It says you must be better, so get yourself together, right? Paul is saying, that may be the conventional wisdom, but Jesus became for us wisdom from God. What he means is that the gospel proclaims that you and I and everyone in this world is needy and broken and in need of rescue. Everything in us says we need to change our behavior. The assumption of hypocrisy is you must change your behavior. And if you can't get your stuff straight, that's on you, right? You know, I have no room to post if, I, if that's not the assumption. That is the assumption. The gospel tells us the problem goes deeper. That wisdom from God is shown in, in that Jesus has become three words. Our righteousness, first and foremost. That is churchy, that's churchy language, meaning being in the right with God. You're in the right, in a right standing. In other words, our rightness before God comes not from us, but from Jesus. So he's become our righteousness. He's also become our sanctification. That's a really churchy word. Some of y'all have been to church your whole lives. You still don't know what it means. Not every time it's said because it doesn't everyone know what that means. No. Sanctification fundamentally means being set apart for God. Now, is there a moral component in the world? Yes. But fundamentally, it's about being set apart for God. In other words, what Paul is saying is that though we tend to think our behavior is what sets us apart as different from others, it's actually Jesus and only Jesus. See, we like to think. I've done these things, so I'm different than those people over there. I'm set apart. My God likes me. Paul says, no, no, no. If you are set apart, it's Jesus who is your sanctification, not your effort. And then lastly, he says, Jesus has become our redemption. Redemption is another churchy word that speaks specifically to the rescue, the, the buying out of someone who is in bondage and slavery and bringing them into Freedom it is, it is the language of rescue. In other words, Jesus is the one who has rescued us from our deepest problem. And then Paul concludes, so that, as it is written, but the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Now, when you see the words, as it is written, if you're reading your Bibles and you see that, generally what that means is that someone is quoting something else from earlier in the Bible. Okay? And here, it's, it's kind of a paraphrase of Jeremiah 9. Uh, there in that, in that chapter, the prophet, uh, God, God speaking to the prophet, who says, let let the, the strong man not boast in his strength, the rich man in his riches, the wise man in his wisdom. Let he boast boast in this that he knows me. All those things are good. Don't, don't be bragging about them. The one thing you brag about, God says, is knowing me. And the reason for that is that it gets to the core problem. And we all heard me say this so much, you get sick of it, but I'm going to keep saying it until God takes my breath away. Okay? 
Christianity declares is that you and I are desperately needy because our problem is independence from God. Now we practice that differently, but all of us want a status and a satisfaction apart from God. And so Jesus is a core to Christianity, not because of what he taught. Let me say that again. Jesus is not the core of Christianity because of what he taught. What he taught is essential and important. But if all you have is what he taught and not what he did, you have nothing. The core to Christianity is what Jesus did. Because he came uh, as God in the flesh to live as he couldn't and to die in place for what we've done. So for the Christian, our hope is not in our ability to get it right because we can't. It's in Jesus. He is for us our righteousness before God, our sanctification for God, and our redemption from our deepest problem. And Paul is saying, for the Christian, our boast is in Jesus. He is our rightness, our set apartness, our savingness, and not what we've done. Because if it is, if, if, if our hope is in what we've done, then we're stuck. Right? Now, that's what Paul is saying. So let me, let me talk about relabeling really quick. Okay? Let's get this label. Let's get this label right. Critics of the church are correct. Hypocrisy is out of place in the church. But hypocrisy is not out of place in the church because Christians should have their stuff together. Because we should be good enough to never be accused of hypocrisy. Never be accused of inconsistency. Hypocrisy should be out of place in Christianity because we freely admit that we are needy and broken and inconsistent creatures trusting only in what Jesus has done. Not in how good I can get it together. Because I can't. And you can't either. As a matter of fact, let me just lay out a challenge. If, if you believe yourself to be a Christian here this morning, and yet you can't muster any more of a confession, any more specific of a confession than I am a sinner. You know what I mean by that? Because we all, it, it's a cultural just uh, assumption. Nobody's perfect, right? That takes no spiritual courage to say, nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. And take us no confession. No courage. Be able to come before the Lord or before someone else and say, I am an angry man. At times, I yell at my kids for no reason. For no reason. There, there are times when, when all I want to do is think about the life that I could have had and should have had, and I'm discontent and, and hate the life that I have. There are times, maybe, maybe you're admitting, like, there are times, love God, I can't stand Him. All He does is keep me from what I want. Like, that maybe takes a little more courage. If, if you can't make those kind of admissions out of the freedom that Jesus can bring, maybe you need to question what I have. Believe me, nobody's perfect. Just go, oh, nobody's perfect. What that really means is, I'm not that bad, God's not that good, what Jesus did ain't that great. 
guess is, if you're here this morning, and, and that's true, you do, you're great at image management, then my guess is you are confident but not humble. What I mean by that is you are confident that your place before God is there because of what you have done. Which, those are nice, confident but not humble is a nice way of saying you are arrogant. Because you think to yourself, I would never do what they do. Until you do what they do. And then you go from being confident but not humble to being humble but not confident. And maybe some of y'all are there this morning. And what that means is your failure is in front of your face. And all you can think to yourself is there's no way I can be accepted because of what I've done. But see, the gospel of Jesus allows you to be both confident and humble. Confident because you're standing before God, your righteousness in general, is not found in you, it's found in Jesus. And if it's found in Jesus and what he's done, and not in what you've done, then nothing you've done can take away or limit what he's done. You cannot outsend the cross of Christ. Amen. Thank you. But it also makes you humble, because you know that this, this standing that you enjoy, and you do enjoy it,
conceded that thing that we think is just trying to meet, uh, trying to, to meet people's expectations is actually deeply arrogant and hurtful. We don't see things like this. Blind spot. We don't get it. We need to open our eyes and maybe use someone else to open our eyes. Others of us, we're just full out. We don't trust that Jesus is good enough. We don't trust that you're good, that we're that bad, and that Jesus is that great. And so, Lord, we need you, in fact, to open our eyes to that as well. And, and I, I pray that knowing that uh, many folks who may be feeling that in this room don't agree with what I just said. But I'm going to pray for them. I pray that you would open their eyes and their hearts to receive your grace and to see Christ. But God, I pray that you shape this congregation into one that doesn't get defensive when our inconsistencies are pointed out. It doesn't shirk our neediness, but embraces it because as we embrace our neediness, it's your greatest Jesus that is magnified. Because so long, Lord, if we are little sinners, you will always have a little Savior. But God, I ask that you would show us how big of a betrayer we are, not to shame us, but so that we might see how big a Savior do that, Lord, for your glory's sake, for our good, for the good of our city, because as we, as we believe that more